This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Investment advisors have been using the word correction for weeks, months, years before the pandemic. Because what goes up has to come down. Take something, throw it in the air, there it goes, it's up, now it's back down. That's that's just how our world works. If we go back to the late 90s, late 90s, what was the Dow Jones hitting? It's hard to even believe. 10,000, right? 10,000. No one had ever seen that. Now, you know, we've doubled, tripled. And yet the stock market continues to go up, even in this pandemic. Shouldn't this be the time of correction? I, like I said before we took the break, am the world's worst investor. I am better off to take things and put them between mattresses. That's how I grow my money. It, it tends to grow dust and types of fungus, but it, it at least grows something. I have no skill at this whatsoever. That's why we are going to rely on the expertise of Alan Small, who's a senior investment advisor with Alan Small Financial Group with Hollis Wealth. Alan, thanks so much for taking some time for us. My pleasure. Let's look at the word correction. Did we technically, when this pandemic began, see what you would call a correction in the markets? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was not only a very steep and deep correction, uh, it, had, it happened probably, at least in my career of 25 years, it was the quickest correction that we've ever seen. We lost approximately 35 40% uh, uh, off of the stock markets here in North America, U.S. and Canada, in Toronto, in about three weeks' time. So we saw uh, a pretty steep correction. And if you were to compare that to 2008, for example, we lost about 50% of the value of the market at that time in about six months' time. So you could see it wasn't as, I guess, as much of a sell-off, but only by a little less, but it was a lot quicker. However, when we look back now, many believe, and I heard you speaking before I came on, I heard you uh, speaking, and it was a very steep and quick correction, but it actually ended just as quick, and many believe that we were in probably the shortest bear market we have ever seen, and now we're perhaps back on the bull market run again uh, and moving forward again in a new bull market era. Love those terms. Can we go over those terms? What is a bear market and what is a bull market? So a bear market basically is, uh, in this case, is the bears are the negative, uh, negative people out there. A bear market uh, is a market sell-off, uh, 20% uh, or greater. Uh, correction is about 10% or greater usually. Um, so we hit that bear market status. And then a bull market, obviously, is positive markets. So we came out of the bear market, so we were down about 35%. And if you look at the U.S. markets, for example, they're actually in positive territory for the year. And the main index down in the U.S. is just a stone's throw away from its all-time high again. Here in Toronto or in Canada, the Toronto Stock Exchange, uh, we are getting back pretty close to where we were uh, at the start of the year. Still off about, you know, a little bit from our all-time highs. But again, like the U.S., we're getting close as well. What goes up 
does come down, and then sometimes it goes right back up really fast. We are talking with Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor with Alan Small Financial Group with Hollis Wealth. So if we go back to 2008, when we did see that correction in the market and that steep drop-off, we spent the next while hearing about bailouts and looking at how companies were going to be helped, and that was what dominated the headlines this time around, obviously, the pandemic is going to dominate the headlines, but we haven't seen as much necessarily about bailouts based on losses in the stock market. What caused the quick rebound, Alan? Do we even know? Well, I, I think we do. And uh, it actually, even though both of those uh, events, the 2008 sell-off and obviously this current one uh, that we just went through uh, for two totally different reasons, the remedy or what got us back, in my opinion, actually is the same or was the same. And that is the ability of central banks around the world here in our country, the Bank of Canada, down in the U.S., the Federal Reserve and in European Central Bank, etc. It was their ability to act quickly. Back in 2008, they didn't really know what was happening. It took them a little longer to react. But once they started literally pumping money into the economy, into the system to, to basically fund and put a backstop to the markets, provide the liquidity the markets need to continue to function. Once the, the central banks did that, then that's when we started to see things turn around. And we did that again this go-round, except this time it was done very quickly. The Federal Reserve, the Bank of Canada, European Central Bank, central banks around the world were a lot quicker to react. It was almost like they remembered the playbook from 2008, and they brought it to the forefront a lot quicker this time. And all of a sudden, as soon as the central bank stepped in and they said, we're not going to let things go down on our watch, that's when the markets turned around. And it happened again. And then you couple that with what the, the federal governments are doing in the U.S., here in Canada, all the money that's being spent on different programs. And what you have is a situation where these, you know, the, the central banks and the government put a floor under this market. And from there, the market could recoup and start to move higher, and that's exactly what happened. Alan, one last thing, and that sounds like a very positive thing. What are you watching, and what are you either talking about or thinking about as we inch forward and governments continue to have to spend a lot of money in every country to kind of help people out, and obviously there's a lot of lot of debt being accumulated. What are you watching for? Well, to me right now, I think we've come back a long way, as we've said, uh, a long way from the bottom. And every step of the way, it seems like you're always waiting for a catalyst to take us to the next level. I think right now, a lot of what I'm watching is actually the, the medical profession. What's happening with these antiviral medications, these vaccines, et cetera. Because I believe when these vaccines come to the forefront, when they are ready for emergency use, or we're hearing out of Russia that they're about to vaccinate their population there and i'm hoping they're very successful in doing so if we start to see vaccines if we start to see these antiviral medications start to kick in and work where the, the death rate continues to fall where cases hospitalizations continue to fall that to me will be a signal to the stock market to investors to get and become more positive and that will take this market even higher so i'm actually looking for positives going forward I'm not saying it's all going to happen tomorrow, but I think slowly, you know, slowly, inch by inch, we're going to see this market continue to rise as we hear better and better things out of the, uh, the medical professionals and the people that are in charge of the vaccines and the companies that are 
bringing those and doing the research on those. Do we, and I guess I have one more question to that, because if we see things continue to rise, obviously that that's a positive, but I keep throwing things in the air and watching them come back down. What goes up must come down. Are we healthy to sit where the markets are right now or even go higher, or do we need that correction that takes them back down to levels of you know the turn of the century or even 2010? Well, you are right. What goes up does come down. But again, if you look at history and you look at the history of the stock market, there are a lot more ups than downs. The downs seem to be short-lived, whereas the ups, the up times or the positive times tend to be longer-lived. Uh, the, the, the periods of time tend to be longer. And so you will see uh, times where uh, the market does sell off, but they tend to be fewer and farther between than those times where the market rises. And so I would say that, yes, as long as interest rates are low, as long as central banks remain accommodating, as long as government remains accommodating, this market can continue to go higher for the foreseeable future. And that would not surprise me as we move into 2021 and maybe even into 2022 before we start to see uh, things start to change on the economic front, perhaps interest rates start to rise, et cetera. So I think we will still see better markets ahead. Well, that at least is some nice, encouraging news. Alan, thank you so much for all of the information today. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. That is Alan Small. Alan is a senior investment advisor with Alan Small Financial Group with Hollis Wealth. So that's why the markets rebounded so quickly. And that is what Alan sees going forward is a continued decline. Okay, let me see here. I'm going to push the button. COVID alert. No exposure detected. You can check this many times a day. You don't have to, though. It, it would send you a push notification if you had come into contact with someone's phone that had then said, yeah, I've tested positive for COVID-19. COVID alert is active. Other than that, the app isn't really doing much on this particular phone that I'm holding in my hand right now. But if we look at some of the statistics that have come out so far regarding downloads, it doesn't appear that this particular COVID alert app is quite the rage of TikTok. We're not seeing quite the number of downloads and we're not seeing quite the number of users as, as we would be with, say, Instagram or various fitness apps since the pandemic began. This is not of the same ilk as Twitter or Facebook. So let's talk a little bit about why maybe people are not downloading this and then get into some of the privacy issues that may be one of the reasons why people are not really downloading this. According to the statistics, who knows? Millions may have downloaded it since the beginning of London Live today. But up to that particular point, we were talking about some, some of the stats say 4 to 6% of the population, but that's not very many. Dr. Thomas Cook is a privacy ethics and internal threat assessment manager at the Center for Advanced Computing, as well as a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University and joins us now. Dr. Cook, how's the day going? Hey, not bad. You know, I've been spending quite a bit of it this morning wondering what happened to the Maple Leafs last night, but, you know, here we are. 
Okay, well, let's let's take a second for the Maple Leafs because <laughs> we'll we'll devote time, and we're not going to tell any more jokes about the Maple Leafs or anything like that. I, I read off a Twitter joke at the beginning about buses going through legs. No, we're not going to do that anymore. But I think about it this way: there was a tip off a crossbar in the first period. John Tavares on an open net hits the post. Cody Cece a shot in the second period where Mitch Marner kind of jumped in the air that just deflected away. Uh, Tavares in tight gets stopped. Uh, Morgan Riley, big chance on an Austin Matthews feed. There were so many chances last night. It it, it was just about it not going in. You think so? I uh, think I mean, it I'm, was. I'm not going to argue with you about it. I mean, you're the last person on the planet I would dare debate about, you know, understanding hockey from a critical perspective. Hey, man, I, I don't watch... coach at the NHL <laughs> level, so you can argue all you want. You see enough hockey. When I sit at home and I watch, though, with my dear brother, who is way more knowledgeable than I am, we both can't help but feed off one another's energy, and what we see is kind of like, just seems like a, 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 an absence of heart. I don't know. But just the hustle, the grind, it's just not, doesn't really seem to be there where it really needs well, that... to be. You know what? You bring up a good point. That's why I don't think it's important, and I think it's actually it actually would be important for the Leafs not to win the draft lottery tonight because <laughs> they already have Alexi Lafreniere, and it would create an issue. They have him in Austin Matthews. They have him in Mitch Marner. They already have a guy just like that. They need a Boone Jenner. They yeah. they need you know they need some of that good Mosley, good Dorchester blood. That's they need something like that. So yeah, we'll see what. The draft lottery brings them, and, and we'll see what they ultimately do. In the meantime, though, I mean, this isn't a lottery to download this COVID alert app. You don't have to win any kind of lottery to get it. Everybody is encouraged to get it. But the way that it looks right now, Dr. Cook, uh, it doesn't appear that people are downloading it all that much. What do you make of that? It's, it's perplexing on the one hand, but I'm of two minds. The second mind says, well, it's kind of par for the course in terms of how Canadians perceive privacy issues and privacy rights in this country. So every few years, Mike, um, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, so this is federal level, they commission a group called Phoenix Strategic Systems, if I'm recalling the name correctly. And what they do is they do a kind of uh, you know, Canada-wide report that asks Canadians how they feel about data and surveillance and privacy and big data and industry and all sorts of those things. And I, I was going through this um, a little bit again this morning because last year's report um, came out in March of 2019. Yeah, that's right. It has some really interesting figures, Mike, and I, I think we might find an answer in here. So figure four, for example, asks, uh, shows uh, uh, statistics about how Canadians answered on their knowledge of how new technologies affect privacy. Another figure shows uh, statistics on how Canadians view whether businesses respect privacy rights. There's another one. Uh, views on whether or not the federal government respects privacy rights. And there's another one in here about whether or not Canadians feel that adequate security measures have been taken to protect data on their devices. And what we're seeing out of 23 figures in total, Mike, is that less than half of Canadians trust corporations and government when it comes to handling data on phones. Whew. Less this than half. Less than half. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised, right? Right. I, I mean, in some instances, it's been kind of interesting in the COVID context because I see so many people um, that are, are reflecting this data and these sentiments to a T. But I also see a lot of people who say, mm, I don't really care. 
you know, I'm not doing anything wrong. I don't, I'm not sick. Have my data, right? So I think it's important to understand in a, in a survey like this that the people who are responding, very, very small part of the population, and they're generally people who would want to take a survey commissioned by the privacy commissioner, right? So these are people who are obviously pretty excited about doing this kind of thing. I, I would frankly find it interesting, but I couldn't say the same about my neighbor or my wife. So the, the stats are still interesting, right? And in some of these figures, Mike, we're seeing less than a third of people um, sharing that they have a lot of trust in how data is collected and handled on, on smartphones and particularly in apps. And I think this is pertinent because the COVID-19 tracing app that we're talking about, the one that has less than 4% of downloads nationwide, which is a huge issue for an epidemiologist. As a researcher, I'm telling you, you, can, you can't do anything with that limited, limited data. Um, but what this is really pointing out to me is that there's something going on inside of this app that is problematic, and there isn't enough transparency around it. And in this particular app, Mike, um, there was a group of volunteers at Shopify so these are private sector programmers who built the app for the government. And this is not something that's been explored enough. And I think if we're going to generate trust amongst Canadians, I think that relationship in this group of people needs to be unpacked a little bit more. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Now, if there was a little bit more transparency, do you think people would be more willing to say, okay, now I get it? I mean, this this was kind of brought in, I don't want to call it under a shroud of secrecy, but it was, hey, don't worry, this has been created by Shopify and, and everything's good and, <laughs> yeah. and it's not asking you for any information. But other than that, we didn't really get a lot of info about it, did we? No, not at all. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm just a little congested this morning. Um, so... I see the role of the privacy commissioners, commissioners' offices in, in Ontario and at the federal level as being that kind of mechanism that pushes towards accountability and transparency and, the, you know, the guarantee of anonymity and security and all of that sort of stuff, right? But <clears throat> the problem is, is that they're, they're just advisors. They're not, they don't have legislative power. They don't have enforcement power. They can produce reports all they want. The government can choose whether or not to listen to them. And the same thing goes with the private sector. So they don't actually have any teeth. They're, they're just they're talking. And recently, um, both the, the privacy commissioner's offices at the federal and the provincial level here in Ontario reviewed this app. And what they said was kind of what I expected, right? Um, they use what's called privacy by design. This is something that was developed by uh, one of our former information privacy commissioners of Ontario, Anne Kavukian. And she came up with this, this context, this, this way of protecting data for people through this thing she pioneered called privacy by design. And privacy by design is essentially a flag. And it says, here are seven principles that the government and the private sector need to uphold to guarantee that the stuff that you build together respects our rights. And the problem with it, Mike, is that when, when you have two offices that are at the provincial and federal levels that are doing privacy review and they're using this, this flag, they're just talking about principles like limitation, anonymity, de-identification, transparency, but they're not specific enough. And this is, this is really problematic, um, particularly in the sense of trying to build that trust with the population. So let me give you a really, really small example. The privacy by design framework that both offices of these privacy commissioners are using are saying um, it's really, really important that the COVID app de or sorry, anonymizes anybody that it's, that's just using the application. Whereas 
we know in surveillance studies and privacy studies as, a, as an academic discipline that it's impossible to guarantee anonymity. For, for white, privileged, Anglo-Saxon Protestant men like you and I, that's pretty easy because the systems of anonymity are designed to protect the majority of the population that it serves, which is predominantly white. Now, let's just say hypothetically that you're a member of the United Nation of the Thames and you're living in New Sarum or Harrietsville. It is impossible, I'm telling you, it's impossible to sign any document and have your identity protected entirely because those documents always have check boxes or statements or lines where you get to write in who you are. If you're a person of color, if you're a person from an, uh, a marginalized community, an ethnic minority, there is this, this is boom in the last 15 years in North America to make those people visible so that they can be protected in terms of the unique challenges that they have as people. But it also makes those populations extremely visible to surveillance. You cannot protect people who are anomalies in predominantly white Anglo-Saxon Protestant data sets. The issue then, my point, Mike, is that transparency principle by the privacy commissioner is completely misdirected. You're pointing at an app, but the issue is far more systemic. In order for Canadians, I think, to have trust in a system like this, there needs to be a full circle review of how data actually gets into a system and how outputs are pushed out of the system to determine whether or not people are going to be sick and what enforcement measures need to come out as a result. Wow, and that sounds like quite the undertaking. I don't know who's going to be up for it, but, um, you know, this, this is the challenge for surveillance in the 21st century in this country. <sighs> I really believe that. What do you think? Do you think that people will over time download this or do you think what we get is is maybe what we are going to get based on some of the concerns you've already highlighted that's a great question and i i don't know how to answer it i kind of feel like sheldon keith uh, last night in the post game where he was asked you know what what are the takeaways what, what are you going to focus on moving forward i mean it's i'm just kind of in the shock of the moment and the reason why i'm shocked is because um the the surveillance landscape in the world, Mike, has changed so much as a result of COVID-19. And the thing that, that concerns me the most as, as a, a professional researcher in this field is the um, hypervigilance of venture capitalists, hedge funds, and, and corporations like Apple and, and Google trying to get into the health data industry. The final frontier for big data, for me, is health information, medical records. And fortunately, that sector of data is very, very protected by our governments. COVID-19 is an opportunity for them to formulate alliances, and we saw one. Apple and Google are working together, and these are corporations that otherwise despise one another. They've created um, algorithms, new APIs in our phones, every operating system has them, that um, are collecting data from our devices. And without knowing precisely how those algorithms work, the covid 19 tracing app is just borrowing mechanisms to make the app function, but we've never actually seen how it is that they're working. So unless we can get down to the nitty gritty of the algorithms and figure out their relationship to these wider trends of the big data industry moving towards health information, um, I, I really don't think we're ever going to get there. Hmm. Well, Dr. Cook, we always appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. We've learned a lot again. Keep safe. Likewise. You too. Take care. Go Leafs go. <laughs> yeah, right.
next year. <laughs> That's, there, there is the perfect line from a Toronto Maple Leafs fan today. It's, it's yeah, right. All right, take care of yourself. <laughs> that is Dr. Thomas Cook, and it's true. That is that's how everybody is starting to feel hardened, hardened against what is happening with their hockey team. Dr. Cook is the privacy ethics and internal threat assessment manager at the Center for Advanced Computing, as well as a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center of Queen's University. You may have a dream, and that dream might involve one day creating your own beer and selling it and having people love that beer and having those people buy it so that you can become essentially a brewer. Maybe that is your dream. And you might be a little older than, oh, I don't know, early 20s and still waiting to fulfill that dream. Well, sometimes you don't have to wait that long in life for things like that to happen. Joining us right now, we have two individuals who are recent graduates of the Ivy School of Business at Western University, and they are responsible for the creation and now availability of Crank Light. Here in London, please welcome Jack Jelinek and Mike Wolfson to London Live. Jack, let's kind of start with you. How are things going? Things are great. Thanks for having us here, Mike. Uh, we're so excited to talk to you guys. And, uh, yeah, things are going well. Things are moving fast, definitely moving fast. <laughs> well, that's good. We'll we'll find out exactly how fast. Uh, Mike, things are going well for you as, as well? Yeah, really well. Um, again, thanks for having us on, and we're super excited. Every day we kind of see growth which is cool because we get to see like each week look back and see what we've done but yeah things are going really well thanks well let's rewind time to the beginning jack take us back to the two of you somewhere somehow deciding you know what we should do we should make beer how did that come about yeah yeah it came out of nowhere actually uh it was never one of my dreams to start a beer company um and mikey actually worked for some time at a craft brewery and he thought you know what I could do this and I could do it better. And thank God he picked me to do it with him. So he came to me and he said, Jack, I have this idea to start a brewery. Uh, I'll only do it if you do it with me. So I said, Mikey, give me three days to think about it. It's a pretty big decision. This is uh, in our final year of school. And uh, I took about 20 minutes to Google some stuff in class and thought, actually, I'm going to go full on into this. So we jumped right in 20 minutes later. Mikey, take us back then. How did this become a dream of yours? Because this obviously was in there somewhere. Where did it come from? Yeah, so I guess um, it kind of, I've always considered myself an entrepreneur, always kind of wanted to start something on my own. And then, as Jack said, last summer I was working for a craft brewery, doing some sales for them. And one day I was walking downtown Toronto, bar to bar, with not a lot of success selling it. And thought, you know what, I think that there's a gap in the market here for a beer that is targeted at young adults and young professionals. And I thought, who better knows these consumers and what they want than a young adult myself? And as I'm walking and thinking of this idea, I immediately thought of Jack as someone I'd like to partner with and kind of approached him about it, and we took off from there. 
We're talking right now with Mikey Wolfson and Jack Jelinek of Crank Light. So it becomes an idea, but you know what? Most of us could say, hey, I want to own a paper airplane company, and we'd make about two paper airplanes, and that would be about it. We'd kind of lose the will to go any further. You guys got a whole lot further. In fact, you have done it. Uh, Mikey, take us to the process of saying, hey, Jack, you want to do this, having him say yes, and actually creating beer how long did that take yeah so i'd say when i approached jack it was about beginning of september last year um and after that first yes it was kind of we would meet occasionally talk about it uh, shoot some ideas back and forth and it was honestly one of those things where like every week i'd ask him like are you are you still in this are we are we doing this and he'd say yes and he'd come back to me the next week like we're we're in we're really doing this and then eventually it came to the point where we've done all the research and we thought we knew everything we needed to know going into it. And it was just about pulling the trigger. And I guess we just kind of took that leap of faith and decided, you know what, we're going to go for it. So that was about in December where we started um, contacting different breweries, help us getting that going, different suppliers and kind of framing um, what the name was going to be, how we're going to sell it and kind of our entire business. We're talking right now with Mikey Wolfson and Jack Jelinek of Crank Light. Jack, again, going back to the paper airplane analogy, let's say I get a, a whole big number of paper airplanes. I still have to have somebody who wants to buy this. So how did you guys go from having a brewery, being able to produce a beer, having a name for the beer, and we'll talk about where that came from in just a little bit, but actually getting this into a position where it was available for purchase? Yeah, that's where London stepped up big for us. Um, so we're both not London natives, but being in school and launching this business while in school, all of it centralized in London. And we had a business plan that was selling to bars and events wholesale. We thought this is going to be perfect for us. We can sell thousands of beers to one event and that'll make enough revenue for us to actually pay for the beers. But then all of a sudden we realized that's not going to work with COVID. We've got to pivot and figure out how we're going to do this. And that's where we lean on the Londoners. And uh, just started talking word-of-mouth sales and marketing. And eventually, we grew up enough demand that we thought, okay, we can actually go out there and start selling some stuff. So we, uh, we were delivering. Once it was made legal, we were delivering out of our truck, like the uh, crank tank is what we call it. And it was the ice cream truck of beer. So London stepped up big. So we just want to say thank you to you guys. Okay, so hang on. You're you're in the midst of this, the start of this pandemic. Your first idea is how to how to distribute this isn't working. But then all of a sudden, beer delivery, which you know existed in a kind of sort of way, but it became a whole lot easier. That all of a sudden takes off, and you guys seized it. Yeah, we right day of we thought this is our moment. We've got to we've got to pounce on this. Um, so we started moving right away. We just hopped right in a truck early morning and started delivering beer, um, and that's. It was a it was a grind, definitely, and it was a long, long day, but uh, it was exciting. Okay, Mikey, give us an idea on on the best day that you had. How many beers did you sell? Yeah, so that I'd say the best day we've had is still that first day. Um, I think a lot of good things happened to us at the same time, where especially students and young adults were all stuck in their home, kind of still learning what this pandemic was because we didn't really have a lot of information back then, staying at home. And I'd say that first day, we probably sold around 80 to 100 cases, so like 80 to 100 people bought cases just delivering home to home all day in London. And that was super exciting for us. That was like our first sales, and it kind of blew up in that first day, which was really awesome to see. 
And, Mikey, when Jack says word of mouth, I mean, are you using social media in order to promote things, or was this really old-fashioned, hey, this is pretty good, word of mouth? Yeah, honestly, like, for that first delivery, especially me and Jack were texting everyone in our contact list, phoning people, saying, hey, I know you're stuck at home and probably want to have some beer. Would you like to order through us? And social media was also a big part of it, too, but a lot of it was just us kind of, going in there and grinding it out and just trying to get as many sales as possible in those early stages. And the word of mouth for us is huge because you see a few, we, we get a few people to buy, they'll post stories through social media and that just adds on our customer list and people get interested in it. Mikey, where did the name crank light come from? Was that in your mind even last summer? No. So it was me and Jack just sat down, had a brainstorming session and we were trying to think of a name that, um, can kind of relate to our target market and what people kind of use in everyday language. And one of the things that I don't think is that common um, of a saying, but we kind of say it out in London, and I know at some other schools, and it's always like, where are you going to crank? Um, what are you cranking tonight? And it's kind of used as almost like a, a way to speak. And so we thought it was a good idea for us to come in with that name. Um, we can relate to everyone in that demographic. And we really like the aspect of it that it's like a, blue collar working person beer that like a crank that you really after a long day's work if you want to come down relax and have a nice cold beer we think crank is the perfect beer for that <laughs> so jack are you still driving around on the crank tank yeah every friday throughout the gta we're delivering we, we decided there's a bunch of bars and restaurants that had to close down because of covid and they couldn't make any revenue to pay anyone so we thought what could be a win-win-win crank could sell beer uh, the restaurants that we piggyback off their license, they can pay some of their employees. And then obviously the crankers, as we call our drinkers, the, the crankers can get their products. So that's what we've been doing every Friday since, uh, since March. Okay. Mikey, you had the vision closing out. What is the dream? What, what do you want to do and where do you want to take this? Yeah, for sure. I think I kind of want to first focus on in London and move on to Ontario and kind of, take over that light lager segment and challenge some of the bigger companies that exist um, and really be a household name for young adults and everyone who's kind of interested in our ideals and our beer and then eventually expand to Cando. Me and Jack really think we have something here and from our reception so far, we think that kind of backs it up, but we know we're still early, got a long ways to go and I'm are really looking forward to where this takes us. Well, Coming out of the Richard Ivey School of Business and right into the beer industry, uh, it's it's a, a pretty bold move, and you guys are showing how to make it happen. The website's cranklight.com? Yeah. Yep. Cranklight, and that's L-I-T-E, cranklight.com. Gentlemen, congratulations on making this work and in finding a way to make a pandemic work for you. It's absolutely brilliant. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Mike. As Mike Wolfson and Jack Jelinek, two students who decided, you know what? We're going to do this. We're, we're going to make beer, and we're going to take on the light beer market and came up with the crank tank and became kind of a delivery service at a time when delivery was really the only way to do anything, meaning the pandemic actually assisted them in kind of getting off the ground and the old power of word of mouth you've been listening to the london live podcast catch the show live on weekdays from one to three